Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the Unauthorized, unauthorized Critics Critic Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCK. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From questionable origins... Of various productions. So as you know, Showboat is now in the public domain. Yep. So we can do as much of the show on the podcast as we want. Why Theoretically, do I love could, you? Uh, you know, Why there's a difference between you love me? could and should sometimes. Could um, there be too I, happy as I think there's another level here of just sort of like moral responsibility that we should take into account the beyond just... Wherefore I should be you the know, one you care they were able for. to make the, the Dear Evan Hansen like movie. Stretch. They could You're make that movie. Doesn't mean that they should have. You know what I'm saying? I am lucky too. Sometimes public responsibility has All to factor into this decision. And it feels like you're being very neglectful of audience seem right now. To come true. Elaine Stritch and I sing the same key. Maybe that's. <laughs> I'm not even a little bit surprised to hear that. Me. Maybe that's why I love you. And that's the end of Showboat, as everybody knows. Thank you so much, Daniel, You're for bringing us the entire showboat. Girl. Um, I am. Uh, there's a modulation. Lucky I don't, too. I don't. I don't need All the modulation. Hi there, folks. Welcome joy. back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle. I'm Joshua. I'm uh, Dan. Welcome back to your favorite podcast. We are more popular than ever with our um, on the mark. <laughs> Totally not incongruent with everyone else's opinion of the Sweeney Todd revival. Everyone just loves us for that. It's, we've gotten a few death threats. Um, And, you know, now now that we were able to um, sort of track down the IP addresses and sort of centralize Annalise's dressing room, uh, we've been able to sort of move past it and get uh, the proper people involved. We're talking about Showboat today, folks. This, the hit musical of 2023. Now, Daniel, I have a question for you. Yeah? Why are we talking about Showboat right now? Why would we not be talking about Showboat right now? It's about 100 years old. Yes, it entered the public domain. You know, we can debate which musical first created the quote-unquote integrated musical, integrated in that the songs actually mattered to the plot. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that can be debated, but Showboat is the musical that first started to go dark and was really the first musical where the musical grew up. And it's mm-hmm. in that miscegenation scene. In that miscegenation scene, it stopped being musical comedy all the time, and there was a bright golden haze way down on the meadow that said, this is going to become musical theater. And in doing so, Showboat is more or less the first musical that is in the public domain that you would revive without doing a bunch of rewrites. Every production varies a little bit, but you're not going to be rewriting an entirely brand new book. You're not going to be throwing out half of the score. I mean, yeah, but like... But, like, why are we doing it, though? What do you mean? Fucking good for musical theater. Why are we talking about a 1920s musical on the unauthorized critic circle? 
Yay, musical theater grew up. Foo, fucking whoop de doo. I'm I have I'm I'm bright and starry eyed, and the only musical I know is thoroughly modern Millie. Why 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 are we doing? Unauthorized. That's why. That is exactly why. The only musical you know is Thoroughly Modern Fucking Millie. Who the fuck cares? Well, Gavin we Creel have done it did a lot modern, for him. We have done modern... Yeah, and it also caused Sutton Foster's Mary and the Fucking Librarian. You happy now? <laughs> Christ almighty. If you're passionate have, about Thoroughly Modern Millie. We have done modern show after modern show after modern show after modern show. I have had enough. I have had enough. <laughs> we are throwing it way back to the oldies this season. Oh, this I have season. decided. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, sure. I'm open. I'm open to that. I'm open to expanding more. What do you? What do you? What do you think we'll find? I think we'll probably have some good conversations about what it means to revive a musical in the current day and age. That is interesting. There's a. There's been a very big conversation recently about what place a certain musical will have if that makes sense like the fact like like programming has been under a lot of very deliberate scrutiny lately people have been taking programming and the first question has been why this now and it's interesting to see that be sort of like the leading question in purporting a piece of art and i'm sort of curious i guess to see how we're going to touch upon that this season? I think that musical theater honestly has hit some growing pains, and we are more or less at an impasse. Mm. Of I think there's a big delineation, <laughs> honestly, between you and I. I think we perfectly exemplify it, where you're not against older shows, but you don't know any of them, mm. and I am of the. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a couple of years in age difference between us, but I'm of the older mindset where you learn about all the classic shows, you honor what they did, and you understand why they were important, and you have to go back to the classics before you can move forward. And I get the feeling that people your age are kind of like, we don't care. Is Pippa Sue in it? You just saw Camelot, yes? I did just see Camelot. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. why that name is front of mind right now. <laughs> I figured so much, yeah. But also a perfect <laughs> exemplification of, well, you can update a show or you can put in a new book because it doesn't work. But if you put in the new book and you remove all agency whatsoever from the character of Guinevere, have you really made it better? <laughs> Certainly <laughs> oh, not socially. Christ. I, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point in the future. In any case, boat show. Um, so showboat. That's what I said. So, what did you know about showboat before going into this? What was your experience? You know what? We'll start off with you. What did you know about showboat? Um, so, in terms of material, I knew yeah. Old Man River, uh-huh. and I knew about the crux of the miscegenation scene. And okay. that truly was it. I oh. knew that it was a 1928 musical. I knew that it was about to enter the public 1927. domain. 1927. 1927, my apologies. Um, I knew that it was a 1927 musical. I knew that it was one of the sort of pivotal works of Oscar Hammerstein II. I uh, sort of knew about it from a historical lens rather than an actual dramatic lens. However, Showboat sort of like as a property, I'm vaguely more familiar with 
because I am from the city that sort of housed its, I would say, arguably largest revival. The uh, How Prince production of Showboat sort of opened here in the 90s, produced by Livent, that uh, Toronto pimple, and had the sort of tryouts here where it sort of had the entire original Broadway cast and also fielded a whole bunch of the scrutiny that the production sort of brought with it here in Toronto. I could go get the playbill right now Not, if you'd like. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, you I could go get it. Yeah, oh, no, so sorry. Here? No worries. Right, I'll be right back. You tell them about your you little... You want some fucking points you, here? You, you, your little thing. You going on about your thing. I'll be right back. You want points. Well, how's this for points? I sang Ave fucking Maria in the theater that Showboat did an out-of-town tryout in in 1927. You sang Ave fucking Maria? It was before some kind of high school... The high school choir was singing. And, of course, I had a solo number. and Right, because you were a soprano. <laughs> no, no. It was the Michael Buble arrangement. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> oh, baby. Um, but yeah, it was before a Christmas show. Breath of Boston. God, this souvenir program is gorgeous. <sighs> well, Livent spent a lot of money on the merchandise. Sure. Never made much money from did. the merchandise, but they spent a lot of money on the merchandise. Sure fucking did. My thing came with like an actual program for the show, and one of the inserts in there is just straight up a full-on advertisement for the Musical Theater Store, Canada's only store devoted exclusively to the magic of musicals. Enough about that, though. Yeah. Um, well. I, of course, knew Showboat. Mm-hmm. I had seen, of course, the 1936 movie, which is pretty great, and I had seen the 1950s movie with Ava Gardner, which is something other than great. Sure. Um... <laughs> and I had seen the pro shot of the paper mill production. Sure. Have you have you ever seen it live? Here's an interesting point. Okay. Neither of us really have been alive to have seen Showboat. I guess. Um, we could have seen this production. This production played a couple of cities, but not cities that we were in. Right. And what year was this? 2014? I think it started in 2012. 2012? Yeah. I didn't really care much for musical theater, let alone give a shit about Showboat at that crux of my life, so... Call out your parents like that. My God. I, 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 I was the driving force for musical theater in my family. They still don't know what's going on. Oh, holy shit. There's a fucking three-page spread in this? Oh, God. So what did you think of Showboat? Oh, it was fine. God, these portraits are just absolutely... No. Um, put down the fucking program. It's always, it's always, don't put your phone at the dinner table. Don't whip out your souvenir program with a podcast recording. Always fucking nitpicks. I was very surprised by Showboat. Surprise can have many meanings. Yeah. Um, I, the only other musical I have seen from this entire era of musical theater is No No Nanette. And Which was a year or two after this. Yes. Yeah. And from having seen No No Nanette, my takeaway of this era of musical theater was, okay, it's some pleasant music and some jokes and scenes around them. And with a beautiful production, it's probably a delightful night out at the theater. And in watching Showboat, 
I was surprised by how compelled I was by this story and by the structure of this musical overall. You look at it and you go, well, this isn't much too different from the way we tell musical theater now. This was there. This was something that was happening. It's just that the construction of the form was aimed in a different direction. The capacity for, for this was there from the beginning. And I think that was the most fascinating thing that I realized watching Showboat. That there was a musical that, to me, still stood up as dramatically compelling, narratively interesting, and entertaining, if nothing else. Cool. Yeah, that was my take. What, do you, what What's your thoughts on Showboat? Oh. It's one hell of a show. Mm. It, it's... You look at that score, and my God, is it a terrific score? Um, you look at the way, it, yeah, the way that it's structured. You look at how, like I mentioned, the musical grew up. Hmm. We're talking about socio-political issues in this show. That didn't happen before, right? And not only are you talking about socio-political issues, it's a musical that leans heavily on irony. Sure. I mean, Captain Andy comes out, and in the first couple of lines of the show, I mean, this is a book note, and it's a structural note, but he makes a speech to try and get everyone to come to the showboat, and it ends with, we're one big happy family. Hmm. And then the entire musical is about one big happy family falling to pieces. You have Gaylord Ravenel singing his, um, what we would call an I Want song, although he's not the protagonist, really. Uh, he's singing, Till Good Luck Comes My Way. And, spoiler alert, it never comes. Never really does, no. Like, it briefly arrives for a second, but it never comes. So <laughs> what he wants is not what he's going to get. Um, there were really, like two dramatic modes for a lot of sort of 19th century and very early 20th century theater, right? Like there's comedy mm -hmm. and there's drama. Yeah. And musical theater wasn't so much a thing as musical comedy was. And so sort of the way that people... But musical theater didn't exist. Right, exactly. It was, it was, it was musical comedy. And mm -hmm. so they were writing within the comedic parameters, which is, yeah, characters will have issues and people will, there will be dastardly villains and all things will go awry. But at the end of the day, the charming hero gets the girl and all his problems are resolved and he comes out happy. He comes across some hard times, but in the end, there is a wedding or what have you. And the entire arc for the charming debonair lead male is just ends at act one yeah but and then the entire second act is played with misery and downfall and he never recovers from that you know it's a precursor to into the woods isn't it i mean it, there, there's an arc there's a clear arc it gets resolved in act one and everyone has their happily ever after act and two, then, then act two is what happens live. after happily ever after yeah and i mean not everyone in showbook gets a happily ever after by the end of act one but i mean the show could end at the end of act one like into the woods could end at the act one end of act one and you would feel like you got a complete story but you wouldn't get the point so is it so is it completely separate 
Act one from Act two, then, or are they just completely? I don't think so, but I mean, you look at the big change in mode, big change in feel, and then and then Act two is just sort of more dedicated to the, the bitterness of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. The bitterness of this is the reality of this man. Now live with it. Hmm. Which is also something that will later sort of come to fruition in uh, the show that must not be named. That Rodgers and Hammerstein did. Oh, Carousel? I that. Well, also, you want to talk about irony. Mm. The one person that has gay lords, and yes, that's the character's name. The one person oh, that has gay lords call and card from the very beginning is Parthy, who no one can stand and no one listens to. And the irony is she foresaw everything. It's interesting to see how much of the way we tell musical theater stories is consistent to this. Probably owed by this entirely, but... Well, I mean, you're talking about Oscar Hammerstein, who would go on to create the blueprint for musical theater in Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. And, you know, would would go on to as well personally inspire like legions of creators who would then go on and create their own musical theater building upon his blueprint specifically and that's how mm-hmm. it's sort of grown into what it is now so this is i don't know this is like the the first sprout i guess and yes i mean there are moments that are completely musical comedy almost anything that's ellie and frank oh yeah absolutely but even then it's um that it's within the context of the show, right? It's a, I don't know if you'd call it a backstage musical per se, but yeah, it is a backstager. In the in the sense of like it's a musical about shows, um, mm-hmm. and so within the context of the show, yeah, they're they they are the musical comedy section, but it's because they are musical comedians. Well, something that's more musical comedy to me is. They add in a couple of established songs. There's a couple of song inserts. Um, to put it in ultra-modern terms of something you'd be familiar with, it's like when Almost Famous sang Tiny Dancer. And yes, it was an original <sighs> score, but they had a couple of songs <sighs> that were established. Um, here, you the song You have to come Bill, up with better analogies right now, man. <laughs> I know it's something that you would understand. I know it made most of our audience wretch. And we're in good standing with our audience right now after that Sweeney Todd episode. Yo, for sure. Um, <laughs> for sure. But I had to say something you would understand. Um, Bill, actually, is not originally from Showboat. They updated the lyrics for Showboat, but it was... Really? Yeah, it was from a different show. Um, goodbye, my lady love. Hello, my turtle dove. And after the ball is over. All of the songs from the Trocadero Club, pretty much, are inserts from popular songs that were popular a decade or two before. It's fascinating you say that. I was actually going to highlight Bill as my favorite song in Showboat. Yeah, I mean, it's such a terrific song. And they did new lyrics, and it fits the character, but it was not written for Showboat. Was it originally like a Kern and Hammerstein song, though? 
It was originally Kern and Wodehouse. PG Wodehouse. Oh, oh, the for... fucking Jeeves guy. Yes, yes. His books huh. later got turned into and were musicalized by Andrew Lloyd Webber um, and Alan Bennett by Jeeves. Um, he created the character of Jeeves. And Bill is from a 1917 musical. Oh, lady, lady. Is that the name of the show? Oh, comma, lady, exclamation point, lady, exclamation point, exclamation point. Now, how would you say that? Oh, lady! Lady! That, too. Yeah. That works, too. Mine was more period appropriate. I guess. Oh, lady, lady. Anyhow, it, it was that sort of... I, I know generally the whole thing back then was that the correlation between Broadway musical and pop music was close to one-to-one. Uh, was that the Broadway music was popular music. Yeah. So was uh, that like... There's no question about it. Broadway music was popular music because Broadway music was um, taking on forms of jazz. Mind you, there's no records. Right. So if you wanted to hear the song, you had to go buy the sheet music. And the easiest way to disseminate the music other than printing the sheet and hoping someone buys it is they go to the theater and they can easily hear the music. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Fair and enough. that's why there used to be encores. Encores right. because, because we can't get would, a yeah. record of this. We want to hear this again. They want them they, they want to cement the song that people are going to be singing as they leave mm-hmm. so that they can then cement the the sheet music sales. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And there are like you know there are obviously a few huge hits that have come out of Showboat, Old Man River. A few. One of the most popular songs in like music history. Not just that, can't help loving that man. I was gonna say that as well. The the two of them hand in hand are like you know some of the most popular and, songs. Period. I mean, Bill, you can't go to anyone's cabaret show without hearing the Doom Pill. Kern has this very peppy Americana vibe to him. It's operetta, absolutely. Yeah. There's not much question about that. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it, it's diverse enough to not feel, like, monotonous. Um, it doesn't ever feel like it's the same song over and over and over and over and over again, but it definitely feels as though it is of a genre, of a period, of a style, right? Um, which I think does more to link it rather than to sort of have them all blend together um the interest for me comes a lot down to hammerstein's lyrics and in the way he's able to juggle both the purplest prose you ever goddamn heard of and also the most straightforward direct accessible lyrics of all time one of the brilliant things about the writing of william shakespeare is that when he's writing his plays, he's writing in this very sort of like delicate, flowery language, right? And a lot of the verbiage is sort of it's sort of read by people nowadays going, oh, well, he's just speaking kind of nonsense and everything means something approximate to what it's actually saying. But if you really look at the words he's saying, he's constructing an entire like painting's worth of detail in a sentence. And it's all about that economy. It's about achieving that tone and achieving an entire huge picture in as few words as possible 
as directly as possible with as little room for like interpretation as possible. It just completely outright gives you what is meant by what is said. And Hammerstein is very good at doing that. Yeah, what's an ex- Hammerstein, showboat, give us an example. Uh, I'll hearken back to Bill. Um, the end of the song, you have the lyrics, and I can't explain, it's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's, I don't know, because he's just my Bill. I think that's the most like beautiful sentiment I've heard in a goddamn long time. Yeah, Bill is a stunner. Honestly, Showboat is one of the great scores of all time. I mean, even if you just had Old Man River, Can't Help Loving That Man, and Bill, it would be in the running for great scores of all time. And not only that, you have Till Good Luck Comes My Way, you have You Are Love, you have Make Believe, you have Why Do I Love You. It's one hit after another, after another, after another. It's it's a lot of great songs. It's truly, truly great music. And in being great music, it opened the door to the connection between good music and dramatic function. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. Now, a sidebar here. Sure. You know what I noticed this time? No, I can't. We're not in the same mind. You have this clip from Till Good Luck Comes My Way. With just the turn of a wheel on the flip of a card as my guide, I let fate decide if I walk or ride. And all of a sudden, you go over to the Funny Girl revival where they added a song back. There's nowhere to go but up. I find that Lady Luck changes affection. Fortune's a fickle dame. Haven't run into them lately, but both of them know my name. It's a- Huh. Is it just me? Or no. are those very similar? Yeah, fuck. And it makes sense because what are both men? Gamblers. Yeah. Who ruin their stage wife's life. <laughs> so, do you, so, so you think it's an illusion from... I think it's, I, I damn well think it's an illusion because, you know, Julie Stein had an ear for such things. He, he went to the opening night of Miss Saigon at about 123 years old, he was at that point. <laughs> for sure. And he sat there and Chris started, why God, why today? And involuntarily he screamed out, they stole that from pal Joey. Which he didn't even compose, so we know he's able to make these musical connections. So yeah, it was definitely something on purpose in Funny Girl, I would think. Yeah, fair enough. Put it like that, sure. (laughs) Do you want to jump back and talk about the book here? Sure. It's based on a novel Mm -hmm. uh, by Edna Ferber. Yes. It was a very popular novel at the time. The novel only came out in 1926. And so they are track. throwing this show up, yeah, in 1927. And yeah, I mean, you look at how 27. Yeah. You look at how involved the show is and how long the show is. You kind of think, when do they have the time? Yeah. When do they have the time to write it? And <laughs> um, Edna Ferber was actually 
involved in the writing process and read script pages and made suggestions and apparently good suggestions that ended up getting used. Hmm. I mean, that's a that's got to be a big step, right? Like having a novel author, having, you know, sort of like a literary author be involved in a piece of drama. Or I guess mm-hmm. even at that point they it probably wasn't widely perceived that it was going to be a piece of drama. It was probably perceived that it was going to be a musical. Having someone with an actual literary eye on it, that had to sort of advance the notion that musical comedy could serve a dramatic purpose. Well, and her trusting Kern and Hammerstein enough that they're not going to cheapen up the book. Yeah. And hurt the book, which is only a year old. It's in its infancy. It's not some kind of new classic yet. Yeah. But she trusted that, here, they'll take my work seriously and do well by it. And, and uh, the book is penned by Oscar Hammerstein as well. Um, mm-hmm. Which was the case for a large number of his, of his musicals. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it also, you know, his, his economy as a lyric writer also comes through in his efficiency as a book author. You always have moments of fun, of frivolity, of entertainment, but you're never really in much question about what they're doing in this show. You know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's my one reference point, but with something like No No Nanette, you're watching the show, and then I Like to Be Happy comes on, and you're sitting there going, what are we doing? You know? They want to be happy. Sure. But, like, what inspired this song? Why is this song happening? Why, why, are, we, why are we here? Because it's time to make the audience happy. Well, there you go. There you go. And his question is never exclusively just, well, what will make a good show? It's, well, what does the universe of this narrative require? And it just makes for mm-hmm. a much more fulfilling narrative experience. And, of course, people weren't necessarily writing musical comedy for narrative. But his ability to look at a musical that way and to tailor it to that way at that early age is very exciting. And it makes for a very fulfilling piece of entertainment. Well, you want to know about economy and setting up several many different ideas and also boiling down a theme of the show. Mm -hmm. Look, I can't help loving that man of mine. She sings the first verse... Queenie says, why do you know that song? I've never known any white people that know that song. So it's hinting that later on we're going to find out that Julie is mixed race. Yes. And not only that, I mean, you see how they layer in people. And it's about a melding of cultures. Yeah. The song. The song, you see a melding of cultures, which, in fact, is a large part of what the show is. Right. Uh, and, and you have Queenie's song as well, you know, where she's at the ticket booth trying to bring in a new audience. That's also serving that point of blending these two worlds together, right? They're like, why is this house empty? Why can't we get anyone? And Queenie's the, Queenie there's going, well, let me bring you the other half of your audience. And that's not even necessarily a melding. It's that understanding that white people don't necessarily know how to talk to 
Yeah, who'd, who'd, who would have fucking thought? I don't know the terms. In the 1920s? Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and then, of course, there's the question of, okay, well, white people are writing this, so well, yeah. that makes it... Yeah, the, the, the perspective of the narrator in, on, on all fronts, always. Mm-hmm. But it's a show that's willing to open up a conversation that says, in the, 19, in the 1920s, America, it's opening up the conversation of... We should stop looking at this as one group of human on on that part of the world and one group of human on that part of the world and look at how can we operate together. Sure. Well, and it's something that Hal Prince really hammered home in his production. His big concept, he realized, okay, every scene in Act 2 fast-forwards about five years. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of gaps here. I'm going to fill in those gaps, and I'm going to tell Susan Stroman, okay, start with the black company doing one dance, and then see it get filtered through. White people start picking it up, and by the end of the show, it's the dance that Kim is doing. You know, if I, if I may, sort of, you, you've touched upon a point there about with the Hal Prince production and this idea of retooling the piece and bringing it to this modern thing. Um, when he revived the show, when it was sort of originally mounted here in Toronto, it got a pretty notorious amount of backlash. Oh, before it opened. Yeah. It, its presence here was pretty ardently contested. Um, there was a lot of publicity around a lot of protests that were happening around it who were calling the production, who were calling sort of the musical itself uh, insulting and racist and that was the onus of a question of why are we telling the story right now why are we purporting this musical in 1994 and really what the protests were about in 1927 oscar hammerstein wanted to signify to a white northern audience that he was opening up to in new york that you're going to be seeing a show that deals with racism heavily. And it's not going to be your typical funny song and dance show. Mm -hmm. And so the very first word you hear is the N-word. Right. And the very first word sung. And there was some question on if they were going to keep that the case or not. And there were a lot of protests saying they didn't want to hear it. Now, inside the rehearsal room, it wasn't much of a question. They were never going to keep it. Right. Um, Lynette McKee and Michelle Bell both said in an interview that they made it clear from the beginning of the rehearsal if the production started that way. And Lynette McKee had done the 83 revival, which I believe began as it originally began. That was the Houston Grand Opera revival. They both made it clear to the powers that be, among many other cast members, that if the show was going to start as it originally started, they would be walking. When you're sort of remounting... It's a different audience. It's a different audience and it's a different cultural period entirely. Whereas that might have been... You know, whereas that might have had function or merit in the 1920s, when you're telling the story in the 90s, it's not doing anything. 
It's not serving mm-hmm. the same function it served 70 years ago. But and at this point, the connotation having... is worse. Yeah, it, the connotation is worse to an effect that you're not going to listen to any of the show. Yes, or exactly. Or sit through it. You, mm-hmm. you, you dismiss it for that purpose because yeah. of the way that, that, that there, there's no reason for it at this juncture. There's no reason for that in this period of storytelling. So, actually, we're tiptoeing around it. Is Showboat revivable nowadays? That's also been a big conversation recently. I mean, because, not to spoil White Girl in Danger, but there's a character that comes on and makes a speech about, I'm centering myself, and these characters are not me. I found out a rather interesting acknowledgement. The first time I've seen an author of a work acknowledge, I can't fully speak for these characters. I can approximate, and I can use them intellectually, Mm -hmm. but I can't totally represent their lived experience and i don't think any author can yeah if you're writing about a wide variety of people unless you're writing an autobiography and if everyone's writing an autobiography art gets boring i regard that a little bit more as a comment about the fact that people look to art today for what it says about a state of existence overall right And people look Mm -hmm. to art to comment on the world we live in. And the way that they look at it has a lot to do with how does this speak for me? How does this concur with my experience? How does this representation of this community or of this subsect of human align with my personal experience in being that community of human? And that, and And that, yeah. That way, I don't think Showboat really does represent a modern audience in many ways. I think it's more a look back in history. Yeah. And I think when it's portrayed as such, it becomes much more, I don't want to use the word defensible because I don't necessarily think it entirely needs to be defended, but it becomes much more easy to digest, much more easy to consume, much more easy to sort of look at objectively. Mm-hmm. The, the, the production that we watched, to me, I don't, know, I don't know if you felt the same way. It felt a little bit like a restoration piece to me. Um, yeah. Which I genuinely don't begrudge. I don't think that this is the kind of musical that at this point really would be conducive on Broadway, I guess. But I think it's still something. It's think, still, yeah. Yeah, that gets to my larger point. Um I definitely think there is a world where a showboat should still be produced. I don't know if that world is Broadway anymore. Yeah. I don't know if Broadway necessarily... uh, The money that exists needs to be spent specifically on showboat, and showboat needs to take up a Broadway house. And if that's the platform for it. should be seen, but I think opera companies do it best at this point. It's it's for me it's the it's the question of the work should still be done for the sake of this is where we once were for the sake of this is this piece of our history this is uh, both in like an actual political historical sense and also from a cultural historical sense 
Um, it, it's a piece of our history. It's a great score, but more than that, it is an insightful book that actually has something to say. Sure. It, 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 it obviously has merit for being a work of art, but I think it, you know, more than anything, has merit as this is one of the building blocks, and this is sort of fundamental to an understanding of this art form's development. And for that reason, we deserve the chance to see what it's like full out, you know? Mm -hmm. We deserve to be able to attend that every now and then. Mm -hmm. I Well, and on commercial terms, it's too big. It's too big. If it was done today, it would have to be done at... Um, Lincoln Center and Lincoln Center can be doing other things. Yes, quite frankly, it, for it's um, for me it's about spotlight. It's about spotlight. It, well, and on financial terms, I mean, there's a famous story, Garth Drabinsky in the '90s, huh. opening night of Showboat brought out every person that was working on the show, every stagehand, every orchestra member, every cast member, and a group of old producers looked at each other, found each other, ran into the aisles, started talking to each other, and they all said, it's a Ponzi scheme. There's no way this ever recoups. You count all the people on stage. There's no way he's actually ever going to recoup this. Yeah. There's no way he's making money. To cast of and 71. Then it turned, it, it, then it turned into, he was publishing all of these grosses that said Showboat was selling out at full price. And... Um, a journalist, I believe for the Daily News, I believe, I'm not sure, um, went outside the theater at the end of the show every night to see the ticket slips that people dropped out of the bottom of their playbills. He went to look at it. Okay, this person got half price. This person was comped. <laughs> this person was comped. This person got in for half price. I'm not seeing enough money here from just this anecdotal picking up the dropped uh, ticket stubs, because they used to tear the ticket, picking up these ticket stubs, these numbers aren't matching the grosses that he's publishing. So then later on, he, um, Garth Travinsky, had a massive blow-up at the paper. He announced that Showboat was recouping, and I do believe it was the Daily News. They said, we won't publish it. We're not publishing this recoup. We don't believe it. God. So it was commercially... It was commercially unviable in the 90s, and it's definitely commercially not viable now. Huh. Places that can produce it are opera companies, and that's where our production comes from. It does. Um, this is from San Francisco, yes? I, I, this was from... Yes. It Was it, was it created opera. at the San Francisco Opera, or is, was it just it performed? It started... It started at Lyric Opera of Chicago, sure. and it went from there. It played Houston Grand Opera. It also went to San Francisco. I think there were another three or four opera houses that it played at. So it was all of these companies sharing production costs. Oh, gotcha. Just one, one big-ass co-pro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, like, four or five city co-production. Sure, that's kind and, of the case with um, opera generally to, to a lot of the times, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, yep, a lot of times um, the Met is oftentimes in collaboration with English National Opera. English National Opera recently had some funding cut, so there's some questions there. Um, they had a couple of productions that were originating out of Russia, and they had to cut those ties. But 
Opera productions, yes, are typically co-productions at this point. Yeah. Interesting to see how that sort of ecosystem works in itself. You don't, you don't, you know, that doesn't happen in in musical theater. It unintentionally is performed more historically accurately because you end up having a separate singing and dancing chorus, which is what you would have had in 1927. And you have a singing and dancing chorus because the opera company has their own singing chorus that they've hired out for the entire season. They don't dance. So if you're going to have some dancing, you have to go out and hire dancers in addition to the singing chorus who's already on a year-long contract and is going to get paid regardless of whether they do the show or not. God, can you imagine? <laughs> with the with the call-out culture today, people would show up for one performance a week. Ugh. Anyhow, um, the production overall, what do you make of it? Mm-hmm. I think it works. I don't know if it's necessarily the best imaginal production of Showboat, but there was a lot of care that was put into it. It has decent enough production value. It doesn't have great production value, but decent enough production value that you feel like you get a full experience. You don't feel like they cheaped out on the set or they cheaped out on the costumes, you know? I don't feel like they cheaped out. I think the central boat set was a little underwhelming for me. And it seemed, I don't know. I think when you have showboat, you want a really cool boat. I think you want to mm-hmm. make it seem like a boat. It And, and sometimes it's kind of like, you know, when you get a, a slightly underwhelming Loveland, you sort of look at it and you go, mm-hmm. yeah, that's Loveland, but it's... But besides that, I found it a very well put together production, at the very least from a design perspective. Um, yeah had some gorgeous costumes the drops were absolutely delightful um and then when they ended up building you know the stages or when they were in that bar in the second act or you know all these hotel rooms i i I thought those were absolutely delightful Mm -hmm. Uh, and i yeah i i I very much enjoyed this production overall we we watched a pro shot of you know a performance that was happening in an opera house and you know, you you don't get too many opportunities to really go all the way back. It has a good number of sort of close-ups and focuses on the action a bunch. But you get the idea that this is something that would play very well in an opera house. You get the idea that this is something that would play very well to, like, 3,000 seats. Mm-hmm. Um, the boat could have been more extensive. I, The boat probably wouldn't have traveled as well if it was yeah, more extensive. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Uh <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. I understand why they did what they did with the boat. It's It has some nice stage pictures. I think it's solid. It's a solid production. It's, it's, it's effective. It tells the story very well. It has some great staging moments, and uh, it elicits some very good performances as well. Uh, and... Well, the performances are more where I kind of am a little hesitant because you go from city to city you don't always have exactly the same cast in each city true and the director is not always there rehearsing the new cast and um also some opera actors and very much the term opera actors are cast in this i mean sure but it's but it but it's an opera production you know i don't know they all felt in line with the same playing style. They're good. Don't get me wrong. They're good. 
um, the material I just feel can be mined more for acting moments. I suppose. I suppose. I guess that would require a an opera company that puts on musicals. Like New York City Opera. Well, New York City Opera only did one musical a year, and you'd probably run into the same issues. Um, I think we're kind of at a point where we need a metropolitan opera that only does musical revivals. Hmm. To deal with these older shows, to do something interesting. Um, Is that yeah, just like an expansion borrowing, of encores? Possibly, but, you know, borrowing other things from opera. You put on a production of Gypsy, you cast three different Mama Roses. You just want to see as many Madame Roses as we can get, basically. Yeah. That's just give that's us more that Madame Roses. You get, give, give us more Madame Roses. Give us more Dollies. And that way, you know... Give us, uh, give us a production of A Little Night Music that actually has some fucking funding behind it. Carolee Carmelo isn't going to sell out an entire Broadway revival of Gypsy. She can sell out two performances in a 2,000-seat house, I bet. Hmm. You would have to really watch the budget, but the thing is, the one production, you'd keep it for a decade, and you bring it out three or four times over the decade. So you're not necessarily recouping your first year. You're recouping on the third mm. or fourth year. Okay. And beyond that, it's a long you, have, you have Lyric Opera of Chicago. You have Houston Grand Opera that will put on musicals. You have specifically so you can rent du out, Châtelet you can in rent France. Do co-productions. Do co-productions point. with them. Be interesting to get, like, the West Side Story from Chicago and, like, the Sunday from Paris and... All those sort of opera house productions? Yes. It would be yeah. fascinating. That uh, that fiddler that they did? The sort of like I monochrome don't... fiddler? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. Hey, listen, every season has its flops, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, just to get it in there, just start, start, the, start the kettle popping. I think something like that would be where Showboat is at home. Sure. I can get behind that. I think... We're at a point where we kind of need that because these musical revivals either have a major star that sells them out or they have 13 weeks of profitability and then everyone goes by and Mm -hmm. everyone's left with the check. The investors are left with the check. So sure, if Hugh Jackman wants to do Music Man, go let that be on Broadway. For all these other musicals that are kind of forgotten... Or not forgotten, but aren't necessarily going to recoup in a traditional structure. Put them in something like an opera company for musicals. Is art making too expensive to roll those dice right now? Possibly? I I don't know. I, I just feel it's needed. It's an extremely exciting idea. Just can that happen? Mm-hmm. In any case, it's a it's a really well done production. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty well done. I enjoyed it. I'm very glad it was able to communicate the story to this scale and that we now have like a really solid high definition record of what this show is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with- that is a good point. If you're interested in what Showboat is, you can put this on and you can see regardless of whether or not it ever gets produced again. Yeah. You don't have to look at it through the lens of like a film adaptation, what they have before, 
or have to bust your ass down to New York to go down and catch it at a library or find a grainy bootleg, you get just like a full, clear idea of what this is at home. Mm-hmm. Which is really, really satisfying. I say let's uh, wrap it up by talking about some of these performances. Sure. Who do you want to talk about first? I want to. I want to start with my boy Bill Irwin. Wanna... My boy Bill, he'll be tall and as tough as a tree. With that that Bill, one was warranted. My boy um, Bill. Bill Irwin, I love. I love Bill Irwin. I'm a full-throated Bill Irwin stan. Have been since. I was a kid watching Elmo's World, and he was Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodles. Um, oh, jeez. Elmo? We're taking it back to Elmo? Fucking, of course we're taking it back to Elmo. It's him and Michael Jeter. You got two of the best clown actors of all time. Well, B- Bill Irwin's a literal clown. He went to clown college and everything. Yeah. Bill Irwin is one of the... It's perhaps the most famous theatrical clown performer, at least in modern history. You and I actually saw his work. Uh, in person. Do you recall this? Um, Bill Irwin was uh, the clown, the movement and or clown consultant on Passover uh, in 2021 on Broadway. Really? Yeah, he was. Really? <laughs> he was, uh, he was, he was the, I, I, I believe it was either movement or clown consultant. One of those two titles. Uh, but and you know what makes that even funnier? He was in a Broadway revival of Waiting for Godot. Yes, he was. He was in a he was in a couple revivals, I think. Famous clown. Here we get to see him for a large chunk of the show stray away from that. He's kind of just doing, you know, straight up acting. Um he does have a few moments of excellent physical comedy thrown in there. And then he has a little moment where he's doing this choreography and he's just truly a limp noodle just wagging around on the stage and it's very delightful to see. But where his services are sort of best utilized here is the way that he's able to deliver to the back of a 3,000-seat house. Um, It's a very big performance, and yet, even in the close-up, you're catching a level of detail and nuance that you wouldn't from back there. It's it's playing to, like, both fields at once, which I was very impressed by. Every cat, Mandy, has a huge challenge in that the original cat, Mandy, Charles Winnegar was known for his impressions. He was an impressionist. So you have this huge part of the scene directly in the middle of Act 1 where Cap Mandy has to get up and essentially finish out this show and is required to do a litany of impressions. It always lands like a dead fish. It just never fucking works. Mm. And the closest I have ever seen to that sequence working is Bill Irwin. And the reason why that comes close to working is because he's a clown. So he turns it into complete clownery and buffoonery. So the moment is not really connected to anything dramatically. Mm. it's you know it's an insert and the insert thing was impressions well bill Irwin isn't necessarily an impressionist but he's a clown and he's able to insert something in that spot yeah so it works you go to john mcmartin and he's like well ben had a mental breakdown i can act really well do we maybe think captain <laughs> andy is having a... no no that's not the show that's not what it is <laughs> 
Parthi! <laughs> yeah, I think he's the best Captain Andy I've seen. Word, I'm happy to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And from there, we can only go to one place. Harriet Harris is Parthenia Hawks. Of course. What did you think of Harriet Harris in Chowboat, San Francisco Opera? So much yelling. So much yelling. So that's the one thing about this video. Um, They're very much performing to a real live audience, and they are not going to modulate in the slightest bit for the cameras. Which, I I, again, I I couldn't stress more. I don't begrudge. I actually, yeah, I think it works fine. Yeah. Uh, you just mentally need a moment to go, oh, she's really yelling, but it probably isn't that much yelling in a 3,000-seat house. Her, more than anyone else, was the only performance I watched and go, how are you going to throw out your voice? Like, how long can you keep that up? Um, well, but that's what the role was written to be. I guess, fair enough. Um, it's not like Stretch was subdued. What do you mean? She was a well-beloved, intimate, sort of very personal, down-to-earth actor. Sure. People were saying that you could. People were saying that you had to be within the first five rows to even catch a performance. How dare you! How dare you! Uh, Harriet Harris gets the job done here, and she's fun. She's a lot of fun to watch. She's fun to watch. She has very good chemistry, I find, with uh-huh. Bill Roman. Not to say that the characters spend so much time really reveling in that chemistry, but they work together very well on stage. And they, they, they find each other's energies and play off them very well. And that's very nice to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, who more do you want to talk about here? Well, we should mention Morris Robinson, who played Joe. I adored his performance. It's a really, really pivotal character. And one that does not announce itself through the show. Joe kind of has his moments, and they are the thesis of the show, but Showboat at the same time doesn't make a huge hoot and holler about his character being that like underlying heartbeat of the story. It just presents him as he is. Mm-hmm. And within that, Morris kind of steals the show anytime he's on stage, in my eyes. It's a not enviable job of... Okay, you need to come on every 20 minutes, and you need to stop the show. Yeah. And there's not going to be a lot of warming, of uh, warning, and you're not going to really be able to finesse the audience much. Like, you're on, and you better start the sh- stop the show right now. There's not a lot of momentum for you. You don't get to have that arc. Mm-hmm. You sort of appear and steal. He lands everything. Yeah. He lands everything. So that's very nice to see. And, of course, beauty of tone... Lovely voice. He's great. Yeah. Next, we have to kind of go to the elephant in the room. That's not a nice Pat- thing to call someone. Well, Patricia Reset. And I say that because she's not mixed race. She's not, no. And she was cast in this. And they have been casting the role appropriately since about the 70s. And... I know why she was cast. She was cast because she's a massive opera star and they wanted a big opera name to give some legitimacy to putting on a musical in this house. She still should not have been cast. No. The production opened in Chicago with Allison Cambridge, who's exactly who you want as Julie. That being said, Patricia Reset 
is she shouldn't be cast, but she's very good. It's a good performance, mm-hmm. objectively, and I I enjoyed the performance very much. She should not have been cast in it. Mm-hmm. Outright, and that sort of overrides a lot of things for me. In general, she's, it's just it's just it doesn't deliver the character correctly. Yeah, she's one of the opera performers who really can act. Uh, I wish we had seen her in something more appropriate. Uh, let's pass it over to uh, Michael Todd Simpson, who played Gaylord Ravenel. I wanted to say that name because I didn't trust you with it. Um, Gaylord Ravenel. I guess there we go. I was very charmed by his performance. I don't think he's a natural actor. I think he acts well for being an opera performer. I think he sings it beautifully. Mm-hmm. He's exactly the voice you want in that part. And I thought he made a good impression. And he's also aided by the fact that the piece wasn't written to be that much of a heavy dramatic acting part necessarily. It's still sort of written with the notion of the bright, charming Broadway lead in mind, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're able to play it in that vein and still pull off a successful performance. Yeah, you have to be charming and then you disappear two scenes into act two. Yeah. I found it a very effective performance. Very well sung. Very charmingly put across. I found the romance very believable. Last person to get to here is Heidi Heidi Stober. Stober. As Magnolia Hawks. Nola. Magnola. What'd you think of her? I'll let you go first. I mean, honestly, I liked her. Really? I liked her. Yeah. I thought I thought she sang it rather well. She definitely seemed like the most I'm an opera performer of anyone except maybe Joe. Um, but for that I thought you know, landed the ingenue material rather well. It wasn't the most notable performance in the world for me, but I enjoyed it. Thought it was as effective as Gaylord. Well, she certainly tries, and she and sings it well. <laughs> uh, she, she sings it. She sings it well, and she certainly tries. But for and me, out of every tries. person in the cast, she's not an actress, and it's I don't kind think of she's a, not an actress. I think she's not an actress. And it's a big, for me, it's a big problem when you have Showboat and you're following her character for the entire show. I mean, she always works hard towards giving you the moment that's necessary, but nothing feels genuine. And I think the part, by necessity, requires... A lot of genuineness. Sure, sure. I I chalk that up to the style of presentation here, you know. Um, and I get that well, you need that's sort of a the different... change. Yeah, that's the change where I really wish the director had worked with her more, and maybe they did. Um, maybe the director Francesca Zambello did, but we don't know. Um, she's not bad. By any means, but but did, I was didn't didn't land it for you? Yeah. Fair enough. I I I, I didn't have any, I have an issue on my end. Well, good for yeah. you. Thanks. You too. And overall, it's a solid ensemble. It's nice to hear a score this richly performed. 
by this yeah, chorus so it, of voices. it really is. It, musically, it's performed well. It's conducted by John DeMann. John DeMain? DeMann? DeMain? Um, Thanks, Jay. And he, he tends to show up to a lot of these musical at opera houses. It seems to be his niche. And he gets all of the nuance one wants, which is not a given when you think about, you know, this is an opera house and they're used to playing Wagner. Yeah. To then say, here's a Broadway musical, go at it. Sometimes it takes a lot of coaching and a lot of uh, convincing that, okay, you can play kind of classlessly, for lack of a better word, and the music is going to be better served for that. You don't have to be a restrained European this entire time. <laughs> yeah. And he, he gets the job well done there on that account. It felt very live, lively at a, at a lot of points. There were moments where I felt like there were, there were moments of cobwebs when they had sort of like the big chorus renditions of Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine. You sort of like hear the percussionist going, the drummer, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is someone who has like heard of jazz. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of going. You know, it, when you go to see a classical group do popular music, as far as Broadway is popular music, it's the percussion that always gives it away. No, yeah, it absolutely, one hundred percent, always the percussion that gives it away. Because <laughs> you just look at the guy there, and he's sort of playing it like one of those like wind-up monkey drummers. It's just sort mm-hmm. of like, the arms are just sort of rigid in there, and like yeah, they're like a well, keeping time. You know, they're not used to laying a beat, to be right. honest. No, truly. It's, it's, they it's, don't have to. That's not their job. They're used to sitting at a timpani. They're more, yeah, they're, they're, and they're, they're more used for, like, a dynamic or a, like, um, they're serving more of a metronome function at the drums rather than an actual sort of thing of rhythmic complexity. Creating the rhythmic mood, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're not used to that. Mm-hmm. Shame. But uh, doesn't entirely let down the production. Just sort of sticks out like a sore thumb on occasion. But the brass, the brass is also the thing that usually sticks out because they just aren't brassy enough normally. The brass here is perfect. So overall, it's pretty well performed. I, I had a good time with this overall. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear it. I didn't know how you were going to react. Yeah, I think overall this production I'd give like... I, I don't know, in terms of a an opera production of a musical, I'd give it, like, a B plus. Yeah, I'd probably do the same. Um, it's probably not worth ranking in, like, general production because it's just not operating towards the same objective. Um, it, it serves the musical well, and it delivers it well, and it gives you the scale that I think this piece sort of calls for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of a musical how would you grade showboat i don't it's think this musical is beyond on right. which everything is built so yeah. it's an a let's say let's say i'm curious to know like comparing showboat to the slate of musicals in 2020 how would you grade it and why in 2020 we had a pandemic and there was nothing in the, tw- in the let's say the late 2010s early 2020s in the last um, decade. I think it's pretty high up there because who's 
what new song is matching Can't Help Love That Man of Mine. Fair. The way that song explodes and just how much of an ear ringer it is. You know? I would, um, I'd give it, I I think I'd give it an A as well. Maybe an A minus. I, it, it, it's very exciting to see that works of musical works had been this dramatically compelling for this long and that Mm -hmm. it's not just like oh people really got the hang of it in the 1950s and that's where it really became actually worth your time it's no you're looking at these are these are the seeds of this art form that would blossom into the way we consume this art today Mm mm-hmm I was I was very 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 pleasantly surprised to see this work operating at this high of a level in 2023. Well, I'm glad like watching that it, you liked it and I'm glad that you're educated now. Yeah. And and I guess I'm looking forward to talking more about uh the building blocks of musical theater throughout the rest of the season. Sure. I don't know if we're necessarily doing building blocks, but I think But just like, you know, some of the more formative recurring theme yeah. I think is, does this musical fit in today? What would you have to do? Is it worth doing? Yeah. we And, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with the answer we came to as to whether or not Showboat's worth doing. Just to mm-hmm. put that pin in it. Yes, to remind people of where we came from. Yes, as a museum-esque piece. Cool. I agree. Wahoo. Well, what's next? While we're sort of in this general area of musical theater, um, mm-hmm. how would you feel about staying here uh, 70 years later? What does that mean? You know, just like a piece of musical theater about the turn of the 20th century. It has a lot to do with uh, shifting politics and the culture of show business around the time. Uh, that was produced by Livent and originated in Toronto and then came to Broadway afterwards. Another Garth Dravinsky. Another Garth Dravinsky, two back-to-back. Oh. Let's talk about Ragtime. Oh, I thought you were about to say Paradise Square. Oh, no, I, no, I, I did say 70 Wouldn't that be later. funny? God, he really does have a fucking thing, doesn't he? He really yeah. has a, a uh-huh. style. Yeah. yeah. Not um, paying people. That's his style. Well, hey, hey, oh. Allegedly. Um, <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. Come on. Um, and also in court documents where he was considered guilty. Yeah, I don't fucking, I don't know. I've spoken to too many people to be able to say alleged. Um, anyhow, ragtime. This is a big conversation ragtime. right now. We just had that, we just had that uh, 25th anniversary concert that was uh, much belated. Belated the music of the beginning. Um, we just had a much belated concert that we were across the street from the night it happened. Yeah, we couldn't get in. We couldn't get in. We couldn't get in. Womp, those, tickets, womp. those tickets were going around. Uh, I tried to see if I could get some of my Toronto contacts to get me in the room, but uh, they all flaked on me, so I'm moving. About it's, time. Yeah, no, truly. Um, I've all. This is another musical that I've never touched. And I haven't really? touched it. I've never touched it because... I had always been told that Ragtime was one of the absolute, like, period masterpieces of musical theater. And I'd always approached it from, like, this is, like, this holy grail, high top shelf kind of musical that I don't want to spoil. 
And so I'm excited to jump into it with you. I was in ragtime before. It was winter oh, wow. in New York as the snow. Oh Christ, were you fall. that guy? Yeah, I was. Wow. I was very miscast in that role. <laughs> just I mean, to warm himself and all the night that Goldman spoke. Were you, were you, were you just Union were you not Square. younger enough? How dare you? How dare you? Well, that's the. I'm saying, how are you wrong for it? Oh, it's younger no, brother. It's supposed to be this young, dewy-eyed idealist. Who... <laughs> yeah, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I walked out oh, straight smoking. Yeah, mother's younger brother was in Long Island, too, with all these motherfuckers. Anyhow, we are going to be watching the December 29th, 1997 recording. That's It's a Broadway Ooh. production. Original cast. Original cast, baby. We're getting Brian. We're getting Audra. We're getting beloved Marin. Um, we're checking in with Mark Jacoby, who has just left Showboat uh, to come be in this. Sure. <laughs> just It's fun. We're really just staying in this fucking general field. Uh, after this, we're going to be doing the um, the Donny Osmond Joseph. No, we won't. Yeah, we are, which, is, which will no, also start Mark Jacoby somehow. No, we won't. <laughs> Absolutely not. All right, join us next week, everybody. Join us next week for the night that Joshua and Dan spoke in uh, the realm of fucking, I don't know, podcasts. Bye! Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Tune in next time when we talk about Ragtime, specifically the original Broadway production's performance on December 29th, 1997. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Boat show! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed here.